Hello, this is Paige, and welcome to another episode of Coffee, the Bible, and Paige, where I go through the passage of the day, and I think with my mouth open. I have gone through approximately a third of the New Testament, and currently we are in the book of Acts. We're in chapter 15 today, and it's a particularly interesting passage for me because this is where the church, in my opinion, walks out from under the umbrella of Judaism and becomes its own entity. It's an interesting study, and I hope you enjoy it. Have a great day. Greetings and salutations in the name of our Lord. Here's my coffee. I'm ready to go. I'm excited about this portion of Acts moving forward because this is where it really, the action really starts rolling for me. I have been uh, so blessed by my time in the book of Acts because I've had some questions answered that I've been asking for a lot of years. And um, it's really interesting. I find it fascinating. Uh, one of the questions I've had has been, why is our church today so different from the way church was in the first century? And I think today, the last few lessons in today is going to answer that question. Also, uh, I was surprised to find out what I'm about to share with you here immediately before we actually get started on Acts 15. Uh, so let's just get right to it. Uh, got a lot of stuff to cover today. I asked Google this question, do Jews evangelize? And here's the answer. This is from the grandson of a rabbi who grew up in uh, uh, Jewish schools. And he says, no, Judaism does not evangelize for two reasons. According to Judaism, the laws given to Noah and his descendants, the Noahic laws, basic laws of morality, apply to everyone. But the laws of the Torah given to Moses at Mount Sinai apply only to the Jewish people. Consequently, Judaism does not view it as essential that everyone follow Torah law. Unlike other religions that feel it's incumbent on everyone to follow their religion, Judaism does not see it as necessary that everyone be Jewish and adhere to Judaism. In Judaism, the afterlife is not exclusive to Jews. Any moral person is eligible. So they don't, they don't see any reason to evangelize somebody Judaism because other people are going to enter into the afterlife on their own merits. So why convert them to Judaism if it's not necessary for a good life in the afterlife? That's kind of my thought on that. Number two, in Judaism, the relationship between God and mankind is not strictly individual, but operates on the level of nations. According to Jewish belief, God judges and determines the fate of entire nations, like in the Torah. God determines to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for their sins, but would have spared them if 10 righteous people could be found in them. In other words, if he'd only found 10, the small group of people that were righteous, the entire group of Sodom and Gomorrah would have been saved. It's believed that the destruction of the temple and the subsequent diaspora was a consequence of wayward behavior at a national level. Consequently, including more people than the Jewish people, is a potential liability with regards to how the nation is judged if those admitted are sinful. Hmm. So they don't want to bring other people in. What if they're bad people? 
then that would make the nation bad, and then God would judge the nation. So they they judge salvation on a national group level, not an individual level. This Judaism focuses on increasing the committedness and devoutness of its own members or people, rather than bringing in new members who may be less committed. So there's no incentive to evangelize. All that being said, it's nevertheless possible to convert. And there is a rich history of conversion in Judaism. In fact, the first convert, Ruth, was an ancestor of King David. The process does, however, involve being turned away three times to test the devotion of the potential convert and to make sure they are converting for the right reasons, as well as a significant amount of study. So, in the Jewish faith, evangelism was not part of the picture. All right. This is where we come in, because today in Acts 15, and in the last chapter we saw where Peter's uh, involvement with Cornelius and the revival in Antioch um, among the Gentile world, introduced a very serious question. Is this new faith a subset of Judaism? Is this thing that's called the way, which was begun by a Jewish messiah, and whose leadership are Hebraic Jews? Is this a Jewish thing that they're inviting Gentiles in for? Or is this something different? And today in chapter 15, we see this is the dividing point between the church and Judaism. Let's, let's look at this. Acts 15. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch. Oh, first of all, let me answer this question. Judea, down here at the bottom. Antioch, up here at the top. Paul, Barnabas are there. There's been a Jewish movement there. I mean, sorry, a Gentile movement conversion there. And when they say coming down from Judea, it, this is up high. Antioch is down low, altitude-wise. So yes, Jerusalem and Judea, they're at the bottom of the map, the south, but they're actually going down to Antioch. From up high, down to low. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. So here's these people that came into a group of people upon whom the Holy Spirit has fallen, whom God has chosen, and they're telling these people, you're not saved really because, well, you're not circumcised. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. Now, I read this in the commentary. This, this was fascinating. The Christian proclamation was not about God's reformation of Judaism. This wasn't a reforming movement. Rather, through the actions of God in Christ, Gentiles were coming as Gentiles into the kingdom of God. They didn't have to come into the kingdom of God by way of becoming Jewish, they, Gentiles came in as Gentiles. Still, some professing Jewish Christians stubbornly held to old traditions. They insisted that a Gentile had to take on the whole of the old covenant, including circumcision, before they could be saved. These Jewish Christians were called Judaizers. Their aim was to make practicing Jews out of ethnic Gentiles. With this issue, the very nature of the gospel is at stake. Is salvation by grace through faith alone? Or does it require works, something else? This, creates, this question created the first great theological crisis for the church. And before you jump on this thing about wanting to pound 
these Judaizers and Pharisees into the mud. Step into their shoes for a minute. Pharisees, by nature of their of their version of Judaism, were very much concerned with purity of living. They came up with a million bazillion rules that were designed to help them not break God's laws and not to become impure. They were raised with this their entire life. This is what they learned. This is this was every fabric of their being. Judaism and the scriptures and the law were everything to these people. And though some of these Pharisees had come into the way, who they had confessed faith in this Jewish Messiah, Jesus, even though they were part of the church, they, they were viewing this movement as a reformation, perhaps, as a new powerful version of Judaism. And they wanted to maintain the purity of the faith. That was the foundation of their going to Antioch. Don't hit them too hard just yet. You're going to see here coming up where uh, they can be convinced otherwise. But at the same time, they also might very well have recognized that if this movement among the Gentiles was to be allowed to continue, it would no longer be a Jewish faith. And that had to be frightening. So let's just continue on. The church sent them on their way, church in Antioch. And as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. The news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and be required to keep the law of Moses. Now, not all Pharisees are bad. Remember, these fellows, Pharisees were fellow believers. They were theological conservatives by nature, resisting change. Hey, we've all been there. There's things in our lives that just, I'm 65, almost 66 years old. And the older I get, the more set in my ways I get. And some of the things I hang on to, the only reason I'm hanging on to is because I just don't want to change. The thing that, that I might be, be asking to change to might be more advantageous, might be make my life simpler or easier. But you know, some of the things I hang on to, I just hang on to it because I don't want to change. This was a huge question. The answers given at this meeting would determine if the way was indeed a part of Judaism or if it was something different and separate, though related. Now, the apostles and elders met to consider this question privately, it looks like. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed this private meeting of the leadership. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you test, try to test God by putting on the necks of the Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, 
We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. All right, important note. This is the last you hear of Peter in the book of Acts. This is the last reference to Peter in Acts. From this point forward, the narrative shifts its attention to Paul. That kind of makes me sad. You know, it's sad in the sense that uh, when I'm reading a great story and I reach the end of a story, and I know there's more story, but we're just not being told the story. I'm sad to say goodbye to a favorite character. Peter has been a central figure in this narrative from the gospel on. Peter was one of the inner three, Peter, James, and John. Peter was very a forceful character. He betrayed Jesus, he, was forgi- he, he, he sinned much, he was forgiven much, and he became a powerful man in the church. And from this point on, it's like this becomes the acts of Paul, the apostle. I consider this the dividing point. It was the acts of Peter, for the most part, to the acts of Paul from this point on. So just like Paul, when he ministered in Antioch, Peter refused to yield any ground in Jerusalem. He makes three observations and draws a conclusion. First, God was the one who brought Peter and Cornelius together. Second, God confirmed the genuineness of their faith through the giving of the Holy Spirit. Third, God cleansed both Jew and Gentile by faith without distinction. The conclusion is the Judaizers would be testing God if they provoked him with these teachings and imposed a yoke on Gentiles that neither they nor their ancestors could bear. The Jews' own experience with the law of Moses should have led them to see the fallacy of their argument about salvation. We'll see later on in some of Paul's writings where he talks about the purpose of the law. It serves a purpose, but it's a schoolmaster, a taskmaster that leads you to grace through faith. Because if the law teaches you anything, it should be teaching you that you can't keep it. That's kind of what Peter's getting at here. We couldn't manage the law in our lives. Why do we want to make, try to make the Gentiles and bring them into that same foolish situation? It's obvious that God has chosen them. The Holy Spirit had fell on them like it fell on us. Interesting. I love it, love it. Then, now they bring, go back before the entire assembly to present their conclusions. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders that God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Now James, this is James, the brother of Jesus. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon, or Peter, has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. A new community, largely made up of Gentiles, but including Jews. You know, this is such a huge statement right here. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from among the Gentiles. A very specific move of God into the Gentile world to pull a people to himself primarily made up of Gentiles. The church is slowly shifting to a primarily a Gentile populace with some Jews added in, yes. Because anyone who believes can be part of this community. But the emphasis and the focus is on the Gentile world. 
The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it's written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Listen to this next statement. Even, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. Since the Gentile believers belonged to God, there was no need to become Jews first. God chose the Gentiles. The answer is given. The way was indeed separate from Judaism. This is the point of demarcation. It's my judgment, therefore, he goes on, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. He's telling them, out of respect for the Jewish parentage, if you will, of this new faith, out of respect for the culture of Judaism, refrain from these things. But it wasn't just out of respect for the Jewish law. The four prohibited items were part of pagan temple worship. He wants them to avoid any association with pagan worship. Food polluted by idols. That relates to eating in the presence of idols. Paul addresses that in his letters. Second, sexual immorality in a temple context refers to prostitution. That was an act of worship. Believe it or not. Third, strangled animals refers to ritual sacrifice. And fourth, blood refers to the ritual drinking of blood. Not only are these things anathema to the Jewish faith, but they are also front and center in pagan worship. And he's telling the Gentile believers, divorce yourself from these things. The point was not only prohibiting these things that were particularly offensive to Jews. Now, by the way, file this under loving your neighbor. I'm not going to offend my neighbor but renouncing idolatrous practices. File this one under loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. So while the council at Jerusalem agreed the Gentiles came to Christ without becoming Jews first, Gentiles still needed to make a clean break with idolatry. There was no space for syncretism of any sort. Syncretism, by the way, is the amalgamation or joining together of different religions, cultures, or schools of thought. He's telling them to avoid, don't blend this faith with the pagan faith that surrounds you. Uh, another discussion for another day. Has our church done that? Hmm. Maybe we should cover that in another topic. There was no space for syncretism. The foundation for the prohibitions was that the law of Moses, which had been taught in these cities, for generations, specifically rejects idolatry and its accompanying contamination. If Gentile Christians ignored this reality for the sake of cultural assimilation, they would violate the scripture and impede Jewish evangelism and disrupt fellowship. If you are going to present the gospel to Jewish people, you can't do that if you have any association with these practices. That's what he's saying. Right now, you have Jewish believers and Gentile believers meeting together. Out of respect for the Jewish side of the house, stay away from temple worship. Stay away, as I'm sorry, uh, 
well, pagan temple worship. Stay away from pagan temple sacrifices. Stay away from pagan temple practices. It offends God. It'll offend your brother, your Jewish brother. So the council decided to make a let, write a letter. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, men who were leaders among the believers. With them, they sent the following letter. It's very short. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So, we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good that the Holy Spirit, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. Abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who'd sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. Antioch was becoming a church center. Now this next part's kind of sad. Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the believers in all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas wanted to take John, that's John Mark, also called Mark with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work. They had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark, sailed for Cyprus. By the way, that's Barnabas' hometown. Paul chose Silas and left, commended by the believers to the grace of the Lord. He went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. It doesn't say that Barnabas went out strengthening churches. It looks like Barnabas went home and he took John Mark with him. Barnabas saw some value in John Mark that Paul did not see. Barnabas would not give up on Mark. Paul and Barnabas disagreed over John Mark, who had deserted, excuse me, the apostle previously. The argument was so fierce that Paul and Barnabas split up. Barnabas took John to his homeland of Cyprus, while Paul took Silas overland to Galatia. Paul and Barnabas eventually became reconciled, though, and forgave each other. Later, Paul considered John Mark a trusted helper. Paul mentions that John was with them while he was in prison and at the end of his life while in Rome. That makes me happy. Paul said that John Mark was helpful to him. And later John Mark became closely associated with Peter. Peter calls him my son in his epistle. Church tradition hold, holds that John Mark was Peter's interpreter in Rome and that John Mark's gospel, the gospel of Mark, was based on Peter's preaching. John Mark is an encouraging example for anyone who has suffered failure. Wow, this was a hugely pivotal moment in the life of the church of Jesus Christ. 
It was determined at this first church council, because that's really what it was, that indeed who they were as an entity was indeed separate from Judaism. It really wasn't a subset of Judaism, though Judaism is in its lineage, if you will, and the source of their knowledge was the Torah, just like Judaism. They were asked to avoid the immorality associated with their with the pagan religion that surrounded them. They were asked to honor and consider the Jewishness of fellow Jewish converts. They were asked to love their neighbor and to love God. This was a scary time because even though they were not part of, really part of Judaism, Judaism was responsible foundationally for much of the truth that they would be learning because Torah was all there was. That was the written word. And it, it would take centuries to, before all the writings of the apostles and uh, were, would be gathered into what we would call the New Testament. And the New Testament is nothing more than, than the writers of the New Testament explaining Torah and revealing Jesus within the light of the Torah and explaining to the Gentile world how that translated into their lives. So though this was the point of demarcation, of divergence from the Jewish faith, there was still much responsibility on the part of the Gentiles to understand the Jewish scriptures. And that's pretty much where we are today, isn't it, as Christians? I'm wondering why I haven't spent more time in the Torah, in the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. I understand that since this is a um, New Testament era, most of my emphasis is on the New Testament and you know that's what my devotions have been to going through the New Testament. I'm thinking perhaps I need to, after I'm done with the New Testament, I need to spend a period of my time going through the old, revisiting, reacquainting myself and studying how Jesus is revealed within the stories and the scriptures of the books of Moses, the law, the prophets. I think that'd be worth my time. Anyway, that's it for today. Exciting times. Exciting times. When we get to chapter 18, we're going to start looking at some of Paul's epistles. Paul's getting ready to go on another uh, missionary journey. So we're going to follow him on that. Until next time, here's my coffee. I'm Paige, and I am out of here. Bye-bye.